always uh, startles me uh, when I raise my eyes and I find a room full of you all. Um, pretty neat. Um, so I tend to um, feel free when I'm sitting in this seat to alter establishment rules as I see fit. It's a wonder I get invited out to do anything. Um, and so the, the rule that I will uh, modify a little bit is the don't leave the room before we're done here tonight. If you have, have got a conflict and you need to leave, uh, then do that. If you find that we're moving into the evening and this is an utter waste of time in your mind, life is too precious. Uh, go do something else that you think will be more valuable. Um, now, of course, if we're half hour in and, you know, there's a mass exodus from the room, well, that's kind of on me, so you're still free to go. <laughs> um, when I, you know, I, I kind of cast around uh, in a free kind of way to come up uh, with ideas for these talks. And when I gave the, the proposed title on whose authority, you know, I thought it was, you know, it would be an interesting thing to talk about authority and practice and teaching and that sort of thing. And then I came across an old, uh, part of an old Dharma poem from Song Dynasty, China. And I was so taken by the beauty of the translation, I thought, oh, well, that's, I mean, that's what we'll talk about tonight. Well, and then last night at the group in Lexington, something happened, and I was back to the authority thing again. So you're going to get some reflections on authority, it looks like. Um, what happened in the group in Lexington was um, it's, we're doing an intro for people who want to enter the group, you know, and don't have a practice or are new to our group and our way of doing things. So there's been this ongoing six-week intro. And as a part of that, I, I always talk about the realities of practice um, in terms of what kind of time and energy investment what kind of commitment uh, is uh, called for, uh, for, for real practice, for a life of practice? And um, I can get a little blunt about that. Um, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that, um, you know, if you want to learn how to play tennis, 10 minutes on the court, kind of when you feel like it, isn't going to get you much. Um, and... Th up to a point, this practice is, is acquiring a skill set. Now, we can, we can become really identified with that skill set and not get beyond that and, and play in the field of our life uh, in a very, very open way. And it's not uncommon to see people who have been in practice for you know, 10, 20, even 30 years that are still really identified with doing and having a practice. And that becomes just kind of more selfing. Uh, it's certainly not what the Buddha pointed to. Well, I had waxed eloquently about uh, what I thought went into making up a, a, a life of practice and the kind of commitment that is necessary. And, and also that it's, 
it's a very, very individual uh, thing. You know, there is no one-size-fits-all for what's, what really is going to work for us in our life. Um, and that it's important to have some idea of what we want to get out of our practice. Um, there was a saying in family therapy in the beginning years of, you know, some people want to learn to play chopsticks and some people want to learn to play Beethoven. And there's a whole range of things in between, right, in terms of really getting good at something. And in this case, this is about really getting good at living our life. Um, and that is going to be different for every single one of us. So last night, this one gentleman who I actually know because he's been a part of the group for a while, he said, I really had a problem with what you said last week. And I was thinking, uh-oh, um, because that's kind of how he said it. And he said, you know, you, you said that it takes a lot of work, and, well, I only do 10 minutes. And if, I, if I'm lucky to get on the cushion 10 minutes several times a week, I think I'm doing really good. The implication being, and who are you to tell me otherwise? Right? And he was, he was offended. Um, so I talked a little bit about, I took that opportunity to clarify and, and put more emphasis on the, the real authority lies on, in the pushed person on the cushion. Now that, that's not all there is to it. Because this is not simply about following our preferences. Right? Uh, it's not, oh, as soon as I get an itch, I'll scratch it, because that's my preference. Or I really kind of feel like sitting 10 minutes today and not tomorrow and 15 minutes the next day and not the next day. The mind is, is extremely skilled in not wanting to simplify itself and really take a deep look at itself. And it's very creative uh, and very convincing in coming up with all kinds of different ways to avoid uh, real practice. So it becomes a question of, well, how does, how does clear, wise authority get fostered in each of us? So... We talked about that a little bit. And then we spent some time talking about uh, this, this sense that he'd been offended, he'd been hurt, and feeling belittled, and feeling um, told what to do. Um, and that, that somehow it didn't feel right to him that I would presume to tell him what's best for him and how to do it. I found a lot to agree with in that. Um, so you see this, this balance. There's a, there's a sutta called the Kalama Sutta. Some of you may be familiar with it. When I was doing my training with Larry, um, it was one of the oh, maybe dozen or so suttas from the Pali can Canon that he really insisted that we look deeply at. Sometimes it's called the Buddha's Charter of Free Inquiry. Um, and it's about authority. 
And the, the teaching is very clear in terms of, of uh, uh, just because somebody says it, don't believe it, no matter whether they sit in the teacher's seat or not. Don't get caught up in conflicting views and bounced around because someone is really convincing of one view and really convincing of another view. Well, how do we sort all this out? You know, how do we begin to develop the wisdom of our own authority? And the Buddha gave two, uh, two helpful guidelines about that. He said, um, take a, you know, if you have a belief or an idea, and you're working with that belief or idea, what are the results? How's it going? You know, if, if I have a particular belief or idea and that's guiding how I'm living on, off the cushion, what are the results of that? Am I really willing to take a look at the consequences of these strongly held beliefs about practice, about myself, about someone else? And what are the results of that? You know, does, it, does it seem to engender greater ease in living? Does it seem to engender uh, um, compassion in relationships, sympathy, understanding, empathy? Do we find that we're actually less reactive? Those would be a pretty good indication that the idea is lining up with the truth of how we want to live, really. And if we find that, you know, that in fact the opposite is the case, then we're up against a bit of a dilemma. It doesn't take um, a lot of practice or tremendous insight to distinguish the true and the false. I'll give you an example. Um, Most of us know when we're about to have that bite that means we've taken one bite too many. Right? Or to have that next glass of wine. Now I know we're all we're all following the precepts and nobody drinks in here, right? I got I got that. But it's just purely hypothetical. So and you can extrapolate that to any other example in your life and it'll work. We get ready to have that next bite of food or that next glass of wine or whatever it might be. And we know, right? We know that it's time to stop. We know when the next thing is going to come out of our mouth that we're going to wish we'd kept quiet about. But we take that next drink, or we take that next bite of food, or we go ahead and say what the urge pushes us to say. And we end up living what's false. Practice at that point and really developing some sense of internal authority is to ask the question, why am I not living my understanding? 
And it's not about beating ourselves up. Oh, I violated the precepts. I'm such a schmuck. I shouldn't show up to the next sitting, right? Um, or why should I even undertake the precepts, which is something I, I hear a fair amount. You know, why should I undertake the precepts when it's pretty clear I'm not, I'm going to break them? Well, we learn uh, to be on the mark by noticing when we're off the mark. If you watch a, if you watch a baby uh, learn to walk, learn to sit up, it's all about finding balance by being out of balance. Balance postures in, in yoga asana. You know, people say, oh, I just can't, I, I can't, I can't get balanced. That's not the point. The point is to watch the mind and body as we sway in and out of balance so that we notice more and more when we're in balance and we naturally incline there, physically and emotionally. So, asking this question, why am I not living my understanding, is a, re- is a key inquiry to living the life we actually want to live, but often find that we're coming up short in relationship to. Whether it's relationships or, well, we can't not be in relationship. Whether it's with the mind with its own thoughts, whether it's sight with the seen, whether it's hearing with the heard, and what that you know stimulates in the mind and body, we're always in relationship. So the question then becomes, how are we living in that relationship? Is there grasping? Is there rejecting? Is there pushing away, aversion? Is there confusion? Since most of us do not disclose everything that's going on in our mind for very good reasons, right? I mean, the fundamental, the fundamental rule of psychoanalysis, at least when I was engaged in that stuff, was say everything that comes to mind. Right? First of all, no analyzand has ever said everything that comes to mind. <laughs> Secondly, if we walked around in the street saying everything that comes to mind, we'd all be locked up. So assuming that we keep internal most of what's going on, we don't show a lot of this to, to, to other people in ways that are actually helpful most of the time. It's one of the advantages of sitting with a teacher and having a, a, an interview. We get a chance to see where we hold back, where we come forth, the teacher can begin to help us explore that edge. And we begin to, to have an opportunity to explore this, you know, these places of holding back, these places of unskillful living. So, looking for the results and paying close attention to that and beginning to wonder, why is that the case? The other side to this, the other sort of, of, of helpful guideline in terms of authority is, is what the Buddha called association with the wise. And I was, I was thinking before I came in that when it comes to teachers, it used to be that you 
saw your teacher a lot. If you lived in a monastic setting, uh, particularly in the Zen tradition, teachers worked with the other folks there. And teachers were fair game. Both to be questioned about their understanding and to question someone else's. You could see how a teacher ate. You could see how they took care of themselves. Uh, You could see how they related to other other people. Uh, It's not so much the case anymore. And so this question of authority becomes in some ways even more important. Because just because somebody occupies this seat, all you're seeing is how they're doing in the seat. This is a role. This is not who we are. We step into this role, we step out of this role. Some of us are a little confused about that in terms of that we actually need to step out of the role, that this is a function. Then the question becomes, just like everybody else, how am I living my life off the cushion? Because there's nobody that spends more time on the cushion than off the cushion. Nobody. And, the, and where the rubber meets the road in this is, how am I living off the cushion? And so when it, become, when it comes to an authority and working with a teacher, I mean, you wouldn't want, you, you wouldn't want somebody working on your car with you and teaching you how to work on your car, who'd never uh, gone to auto school, right? You wouldn't want somebody helping you fly a, a, an airplane who hadn't, had, who hadn't clocked lots of time, right, doing flying and teaching. It's the same thing in terms of working with a teacher. You want somebody who's been trained, And, and this will be hard, I know, but it's, it, it's important to really, really watch your teachers and, and how they behave. You know, how they walk down the hall, how they relate to staff, how they, you know, are on the street with waitresses and waiters. And, and, uh, and by the way, it's just fine to ask a teacher what their edge of practice is. And if they don't want to tell you, personally, I'd be looking for an exit. It's like asking a therapist, you know, where did you train? What was most useful for you in your training and what was most difficult? If a therapist doesn't want to talk about that, again, it's, only my perspective, but it's not somebody that I would want to work with. So you don't check your adulthood or your common sense at the door when you enter this practice. And it's and it happens in very subtle ways. Deferring in certain ways. You know, I, I think the same amount of respect should be paid to each other as is paid to a, somebody who occupies this seat. And again, this is, this is my perspective, okay? I don't presume to say other teachers should, should do this. 
any more than I would say that other people should, other teachers should practice the way I practice. And I think that, you know, we, we know how people are living by how they comport themselves with us. And you have to be, because the opportunities are limited, you have to be better at it. You have to be more discerning. I would say as discerning as when you pick a primary care physician. Right? If you're not asking them where they trained and what worked and what didn't and what they need to get better at and how they view working with patients, you're not doing your job. It goes both ways. And any, any real teacher will appreciate that good kind of challenge because it makes them go deeper. It also encourages people not in this seat to go a little deeper as well, to reclaim or to see if reclaiming is necessary one's own personal authority. And again, not, not giving in to whim. This has to be educated authority. It has to have wisdom. It has to have self and other compassion. And each of us can only occupy that teacher's seat for ourselves. So one last little piece, and then we'll go to Q&A. The, and you've, those of you who hang out around here a lot have heard this, and, and I don't know that it can be heard enough. Um, the only real teacher, and if this sounds a little cliche, for me it's not. The only real teacher is our life and how we're living it. Because in Zen, we've got what are called the bodhisattva vows. One of those vows is Dharma gates are countless. I vow to wake to them. Every moment is an opportunity to, to be woken up by our life. And when we take on practice as having that kind of, of continuous opportunity, then you'll begin to see how we live and how we practice and how we are in our lives begins to shift. Because then, you know, getting stuck in traffic isn't something to, to moan about. Or a difficult coworker is not something to complain about. Or my kid coming home, of course my kids don't do this because they're now like 36 and 31, but they did come home well after when they were told to come home. And not in the greatest shape sometimes. <laughs> now I'm sure nobody else who's had kids in here ever had that experience. So. Um, when, when we see and really feel those opportunities as an occasion to look at the mind of greed, of grasping. I really want my kid to come home. Anger. I'm so pissed that she didn't come home in the shape that I wanted her to do. 
and confusion. Well, I can't yell at her. She's my kid. That wouldn't work. What should I do? We watch that. She's now become the mirror for my mind. That is the invitation to practice and wake up because from that, I have a much greater chance of coming back into some kind of a relationship that's actually going to work for both of us or at least have some chance of doing it. When my my oldest was uh, in the throes of adolescence, um, I walked into the living room one late morning and she was sitting on the couch and she, you know, she kind of growled at me a couple of times as she walked back and forth. And um, I walked in and she looked up and she said, do you have to breathe so loud? <laughs> and it was like everything, you know, I, it, it was great because in that moment, and I can't claim responsibility for it, but I can tell you what happened. And it came from, I mean, it, it came from a lot of attending to those kinds of moments. But there was just this clarity that it didn't matter what I said or did. Anything would make it worse. The question was, could I make it the least worse possible? (laughs) And that's what happened. And our relationship shifted at that point. I experienced myself different. She experienced me differently. And there had been a lot of conflict. And it's not like, oh, wow, now we're both bulletproof. It doesn't bother us anymore. No. But there there was a discernible shift in the relationship. So as as we use our life as practice and, and as an opportunity to look at how the mind works, these shifts happen. We can't predict them. We can't order them up. They're they're truly choiceless. We can certainly make ourselves a little more accident prone, which is a really really wonderful thing. So. I'm done.